I am like 75% certain that I saw a McDonald's branded condom on my walk home on the street a couple of days ago. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what, what makes you think it was a McDonald's branded Ooh. condom? Did it have the golden arches on it? It did. No, it was so, you know, it was dark, granted, which is why I'm granting myself only 75%. But as I was walking by it, there was a plastic wrapper on the ground. It was square, you know, it was probably about like, I don't know, maybe like four inches by four inches, you know, around and, and had like what looked to be inside of it, like the, you know, kind of latex the, ring. The like raised ring. Yeah. That- the, but four inches by four inches is like not condom size. That's like maybe a maybe diaphragm I'm, size. Yeah. Well, the the thing inside wasn't. It was the plastic around it. Yeah. Maybe it was smaller than that. Maybe I'm not good at at measuring from with with my eyes. But uh, but <laughs> no, like, it was. It's, it's usually like two inches. I by mean, two inches. The thing was condom sized inside of it. If, okay. If it was in fact what I thought it was, it was a, like a, a latex ring inside of a clear plastic, and I feel pretty certain that there was just a yellow arch on it. Did you stop and investigate? No, I thought about it, and then I even, you know, took the same path home the following evening, wondering if I would see it again. But I think at that point, it, you know, may have wound up stuck in the grooves. Someone had of, collected it. Yeah, someone had collected it and used it, or, uh, you know, it had gotten picked up in the tire treads of a passing car, because it was, like, in the middle of the street. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and it was, you know, th- this is another thing, right? I'm, I'm very safe when crossing the street. Mm-hmm. I put my phone down, my eyes up, I, I wait for cars to come to a full stop, and I don't pause to investigate uh, condoms in the road. If there was going to be a time and a place where something like mcdonald's branded condoms would come to fruition it would be in 2021 in like a you know pseudo demolition man future where like everything is like branded and commodified well that's why i bring it up i think is because it just it felt very timely it felt like a, a sort of obvious but still surprising result of the perpetual you know sort of glacial slide into corporatist you know takeover of of our entire lives that feels like very germane to the demolition man future yeah that is posited like i i i want to say that they even had something similar well they if you remember were pretty much completely opposed to and and had criminalized any sort of physical touch so not not like not like corporate branded sex in that one but but i felt like there was a taco bell branded like wellness something maybe am i making that up probably we we (laughs) talked a little bit about that that you know the idea of taco bell sort of co-opting different types of cuisine as opposed to just like uh seven layer and you know chalupas or whatever they yeah. are. Yeah, uh, I think I'm imagining like Taco Bell birth control, but I don't think that's real. <laughs> no, there's nothing like that in the film that I can recall. But yeah, we we kind of had to pause it when watching it that because they were eating, you know, greens and something that looked akin to sushi or or like a a nice sort of uh, steak cut with uh, like an an au jus glaze or something on it. Like it, we we had to imagine that. Taco Bell had just sort of co-opted all cuisine and food and every restaurant had just become a Taco Bell branded restaurant, but served different things than uh, the Crunchwrap Supreme. 
Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. I can go. I can go for a draft scream right now. <laughs> you say that, but then you would bite into one. You would think about it for a minute, and then you would just fall like I into wouldn't actually, self-hatred. I wouldn't close the deal. But when I do, <laughs> when I walk past fun to think about the it. cantina, I like to imagine, you know, what it would be like to eat a gordita or yeah. something. Until I see, you know, somebody right outside of the cantina windows because they're they're only having people like order at, at that side window by the kitchen right. for pickup right now, you know, they're and they're like licking the window or, you know, breathing yeah. all over something. And, and I'm like, this is, you know, coughing, coughing onto their $20 bill before they hand it to the, well, the person at the register. That to me is like, I'm going to stay away from, from Taco Bell for have now. Have you noticed with that cantina specifically, the windows are always like really steamy? Yes. Well, <laughs> like, it's a like it's sweating on the inside. It's a it's a very steamy place. I think it's just sort of and they have it like hermetically sealed. I think because of the virus. Right. Well, I was gonna say it's probably like two or or even threefold. One of the things is that it's you know fryers and and grills and they're they're cooking a lot of hot, warm, fresh food. Uh, the thing is is sealed shut, so the windows fog. Probably not. You know, double-paned glass and, and fogging the interior window. And the other thing about it was just the conceit that maybe it's just, you know, raw sexual energy, per, <laughs> you know, perpetuated within the space. Now, they have branded condoms. That cantina definitely sells Taco Bell condoms. Probably, yeah. <laughs> or like Mountain Dew Baja Blast colored condoms. And, yes. Yeah, just like neon blue and green and glittery. Yeah, I don't know. It was just like one of those things that felt very, like you said, germane to our Demolition Man conversation, but also just sort of to just today. And and yeah, we're in the Biff timeline. Right, we're we so are. and that, a McDonald's condom makes sense. It just it was nice to see. Often, what I see is sort of like a, an heirloom or relic of of the '90s, and and just how pervasive they were in the '90s, and how much I ate them to make this bold comeback and make this statement that, you know, safe sex is important to them in terms of their brand. Yeah. And um, I'm interested to see what else they have. Maybe they will have a diaphragm at some point. <laughs> Maybe they'll do a, uh, what? Oh, what's the name? What's the brand name of the cup? The, the oh, one, the Diva Cup? The Diva Cup. That's yeah. what it is. I think maybe there'll be like a McDonald's Diva <laughs> Cup. That'll be like your first Happy Meal toy when you turn like 13 is just a Diva Cup. Yeah, as with all things, literally everything, there's like a subset of people who have really strong opinions about the Diva Cup. I think I was talking about this with some girlfriends like when it first like came on the market and was, you know, like sweeping vaginas literally and figuratively. Oh. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, in the Diva Cup discourse, there are people who believe really strongly that it's like a liberal leftist dirty lady hippie thing is it because the blood is retained and it's sort of unfettered unperturbed and unconsumed form like it like it would be if it were just to soak into a a pad or a tampon yes okay i mean whatever people who shouldn't have opinions about periods have opinions about periods and there's like there's like 49% of the world population that I feel have a, an opinion about periods that, that really aren't entitled to have one. <laughs> I agree. Considering it's not a thing that they really have to deal with uh, in any sort of pragmatic manner. And if they did, we would all be dead. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I remember that coming up and I was just like, sure, I guess. But like it became this politicized liberal thing to uh, like right. be using a diva cup. The, co- the like, cultural <laughs> Marxists want you to to spill blood on your, your sink. Bisexual, your... eat hot chip whatever <laughs> right eat hot like chip be bisexual lie sleep till noon use diva cup <laughs> that is that is part of the uh the postmodern neo-marxist agenda anyways my point is that i think mcdonald's would want to stay out of that politicized landscape right stay out of the diva discourse uh for fear of confrontation with the counter cup culture yes that was a pretty good alliteration that was a really good one. thank you yeah that's that's uh, that's all I have to offer today. Mm, already, I think we're like <laughs> ten out of ten, knocking Perfect. it out of the well, park. Well, this is a great this episode. episode. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, best episode we've ever done. Uh, one other thing I did want to talk about before we get into uh, the discussion of today's film is something that is adjacent to and proximate to film discourse right now, which is the award season including the imminent Oscar nominations as imminent. well. Imminent. Imminent. Well, they extended the the time frame, the window in which a film can be released and still qualify for the 2021 Oscars. Why they, did they do that? Uh, because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They, they moved the ceremony back to April when it's normally in February. Right. And right. Uh, generally the cutoff is right at the end of December for a February award ceremony. This year, the cutoff is end of February for uh, an April ceremony. So so films released in the first part of 2021 uh, will qualify as 2020 films because so many release slates got pushed back and, and the field was so crowded. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. It was sort of to like make up for some of the lost time that productions had because of the logistical issues and all the other things that came along with shutdown. Right. Well, and you know, the award season generally being kind of a, a period of time from anywhere in you know, September through the end of the year, some of these films didn't have a place to go and didn't have theaters to screen in. Right. So they were sort of left in the ether for a little while, finding a place on a streaming service where they mm. could be seen um, or, or you know, finding a, a means of distributing and releasing within a certain number of theaters in order to qualify for okay. consideration. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's a mixed bag and it's a crowded field this year, but a couple of films uh, keep coming to the forefront of the conversation. The first of which, of course, is Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, starring Frances McDormand, which I have not seen. Nor have I. I intend to at some point. I'm sure it's a fine movie. I love Frances McDormand. Love Frances. Um, I haven't seen Chloe Zhao's last film, The Writer, but I, I've heard wonderful things about that, you know, and equally sort of tender and and compassionate portrayal of sort of working class middle America. And it seems like like a fine film. There's interesting implications in, in the film. You know, she is a person who's experiencing incredible grief and tremendous loss, both personally and in terms of her her working and professional life as well. Like a factory gets shut down that she worked at for, for years um, and then becomes like an Amazon worker, like a seasonal... Uh, like warehouse worker and then takes to the road and and sort of becomes this this nomad finding people meeting new people and embracing this lifestyle going back to the amazon warehouse every so often to work to get money and then traveling some more and it's just, it's a I, I pray that it's not somehow interpreted or or intrinsically assumed by 
more of like the PMC woke liberal crowd who will like this film uh, to be like a, a prescription for the failings of of uh, American industry. Yeah. But but it certainly feels like maybe that's where that film is going and why so many people care about it because it's you know this tender portrayal of working class America and somebody finding a new outlet and finding the capacity to thrive even in the midst of total collapse of of the world that that they know yeah and it can assuage some of that professional managerial class guilt that we have for how badly treated and just how little is actually given to the working class in any in any field but factory jobs in particular right it's certainly come to light more so in the last year as we've become more reliant on those people than we ever have been before it's funny how just like as a side note in my mind like i i've almost like gotten to the point of equating liberal with a certain level of income because there is so much what's the word homogeneity um, yeah well when we talk about you know a certain type of democratic ideology a certain type of liberal ideology on the show i think that we're often talking about uh, you know a, a certain socioeconomic status and a certain type of liberal who has benefited largely from this system who who maintains it sort of uh almost preternaturally right mm-hmm. and uh and who are often the people who are sort of the most vocal and they're part of a lot of times the class of people who who define what art, what media we consume, what we read, how we interpret it. And and a lot of those people are really, really taking to this film, Nomadland. Yeah. And I guess my point is that like, you know, in conversations I've had with people who are sort of more center, more, more subscribe more to the liberal ideology um, and have a certain, you know, amount of comfort themselves economically, there is discomfort with the idea that these people aren't making enough to survive. Like, they don't really want to hear that. And I, I find those conversations interesting, if not challenging, because, you know, I can see this sort of, like, this tension between the contradictions that they're grappling with. On the one hand... You've seen a lot of liberals sort of take to the idea of decrying a person like Jeff Bezos um, without informed perspective on class that comes along with a critique of someone like Jeff Bezos. Right. Um, just sort of like attaching themselves to that being the next like woke thing that they're doing. Well, and they see it, I think, largely as just a, a critique of uh, his exorbitant wealth and his unwillingness to focus any of it into more philanthropic endeavors, which is is not the, you know, the ends that I think a certain uh, political ideology seeks, right? I, th- I think right. it's the, the fact that that sort of wealth and, and that kind of accumulation of it is something that shouldn't actually be possible when you're, uh, you know, not exploiting a, a workforce or labor force or any sort of systems. Yeah, his status and his wealth is a direct manifestation and proof positive of the ills, which is a feckless word in this case, but the ills of a late stage capitalist system. In any case, it's interesting to sort of see the tension of like, you know, they understand to a certain degree that there's something bad about this, right? About this relationship that this man has with the workers who have built his wealth, but they don't want to confront sort of the realities, the the tacit realities of 
what those people's lives look like Mm -hmm. um, or what they're, you know, how badly it is they are treated and exploited because we tell ourselves that that doesn't happen in this country. Yeah, so I could see people of that mindset really taking to a film like Nomadland if it does in fact sort of assuage some of that guilt and give them an outlet to say like, oh, see, things are really actually okay. They just need to find like X thing. And I think that that is a large part of why the film will find success. It did win the Golden Globe for Best Picture, you know, in the drama category. I mean, I'll watch Frances in anything. Absolutely. And I'm sure she's wonderful in it. She has been sort of the uh, proxy for a lot of these sort of middle America, working class, grief stricken women in a lot of movies lately. Like she was the same in, in, um, Martin McDonough's uh, three billboards outside of Ebbing, yeah, Missouri. Yeah, it was like seven signs something. <laughs> I've, it, it's it's a, a, a title that I've already forgotten. I think that the film itself, too, has all, already kind of been lost to time. It, yeah. It, it wasn't a bad movie. I would certainly be interested in revisiting it now after a few more years of political radicalization and living through the current moment mm-hmm. uh, and, and paradigm here and see what I feel about it now. But yeah, I think that this film will likely win the best picture at the Oscars. I think that Chloe Zhao is is probably uh, on track to also win the director award as well. Um, and it, it, it does function that way. It sort of functions as a, as a comforting fable for a lot of this sort of Hollywood I- elite class of liberals who want to know that there is still an outlet for people to express and feel and move past their grief and move past their economic struggles and and find a new way of living that feels fulfilling to them and i think that that's sort of what the movie apparently is implying is that there is still outlets for this thing and that it's just a shifting and evolving sort of idea of what being a member of working class middle America is and what it looks like. Chloe Zhao has also already been uh, subsumed into the the Marvel canon. She's going to be the director of the new film, The Eternals. And as we've seen time and time again, none of these young, interesting and exciting filmmakers ever really come out unscathed or, or no. with or with their, their particular artistic style and vision intact. They've you, done I it. I mean, you can't. No, you it's can't. It's a franchise for a reason. Right. I, I mean, I, I am... Thankful that he's making good money, but Ryan Coogler's best films were the ones he did before he made Black Panther, Agreed. you know, and as and as much of his, the movie does a better job than I think any up to this point have done. And certainly, you know, like its importance can't be understated in terms of just it's the, the amount of financial backing and the studio system allowing for a narrative of that kind to exist. But, you know, Fruitvale Station and I mean even Creed you know which was already sort of a Hollywood studio production has more of that sort of pathos and emotion than than I think Black Panther does in in its entire running time like you know I I don't think that we're gonna see some sort of like tender thoughtful uh, and nuanced evocation of the American spirit in Chloe Zhao's The Eternals from (laughs) from Marvel Studios well yeah I was gonna say I mean it's you know in you're in the Marvel universe right so it has to be commodified and sanitized to a certain extent right. and so it that always, it can fit within that landscape. And it always just effectively functions as partly uh, its own story, but also partly a, a trailer for the next item in the series of items that will be coming along for you to see that you need to see in order to link the chain and understand the narrative. Yeah. But um, I mean, get that money, girl. Get that money. That's great. Maybe, you know, all of these young filmmakers will eventually move out of, of the Marvel canon and have a bunch of money behind them to make really exciting new 
American film fair. But uh, I always, you know, commend the, the, the sort of new school of young filmmakers who don't go that route, even after having a successful movie. Yeah. I'm interested to see, you know, Ari Aster's Fantastic Four, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but I hope not. <laughs> no, I actually think they already have the director for that film and it's, oh, great. It's, that's it's like the seventh Fantastic Four we've had. Right. But the first one that Marvel Studios is doing. Cool, so cool, a whole cool, new, cool, cool. you know, one without Chris Evans as the little fire boy. Cool. Yeah. Cool. One other thing I want to talk about in terms of the award season films and fair that I think is actually uh, relevant to the discussion about today's film before we move on and we'll offer a good segue is uh, specifically Netflix's films that that will likely be its best picture contenders. Uh, There's, I mean, I think a, a lot of emphasis and a lot of easy money on predicting that both David Fincher's Mank and Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7 will wind up as best picture nominees. One that is notably more of a toss-up is Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, which is a film that I know both of us loved. Mm-hmm. We both had an intense emotional reaction and response to it. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of tears. It's it's a very confrontational film. It's a really emotionally brutalizing film. Yep. Um, and Delroy Lindo is unbelievable in it. Like gives one of his best performances, obviously, but but hands down one of the best performances of, of last year. He's just like bone rattling in that performance. He's absolutely amazing. And I think that that film might actually miss out on a nomination this year. Emily Vanderwerf from, from Vox, a film critic, has a lot of great takes on these things and actually talked a little bit about this being kind of a misfire on Netflix's behalf, that, that they've been sort of pushing in their awards campaign these two films over, over the five bloods, specifically uh, Chicago 7 and, and Mank. And first of all, I agree. I think that's absolutely true. I think that of the three, uh, The Five Bloods is the best one. Mm -hmm. But also I was just thinking about how of the moment that particular decision feels Mm -hmm. in in the worst way Mm -hmm. and how how very 90s it feels as well. And I, you know, to, to take a movie that is that thoughtful about something that is still so prevalent, a, a conversation that this time last year, could not have been a more potent and timely message and and thematic exploration on behalf of Spike Lee around the George Floyd protests to suddenly sort of just be forgotten and and condemned to another time in another place in favor of these other two movies, one of which is, for all of its nuance and grittiness, still very much a, a nostalgic, classic Hollywood throwback sort of film. Yeah. And lionizing a white dude, like right, and uh, and another film that is a deeply sanitized, so and, sanitized, and uh, and cauterized version of leftist activism in the 1960s that also takes all of the underpinnings of that radical movement and co-ops it into a message of unity around uh, our our armed men and women and around the the sort of American empire, really. And also barely, if at all, scratches the surface of the racialized tensions and animus that were also a part of this movement. Yeah, it, and it feels like it... it it's it, like a, there's like one nod to Fred and like... Right, and Bobby Seale. And, it's, it's, and Bobby Seale and, and, and that's it. It's very manipulative and, and very sort of coercive in the way that it, it utilizes them as a dramatic and narrative element. Yeah. Um, it's really troubling. It is. But but it also feels very much like 
the current moment, mm-hmm. right? A, a Joe Biden administration and this sort of resurgence of conversations around unity and bipartisanship and the middle that we've been talking about that are on display in the Chicago 7 and this sort of strategic forgetfulness of a much more confrontational, oppositional, and and violent past uh, and, and very, very near past at that. It's, it's just disappointing to me to see that that movie won't be regarded uh, in the same way, but but not surprising. Yeah, you made a really interesting point when we were talking about this earlier, just to sort of like crystallize what you're saying, that in, you know, sort of purposefully forgetting and leaving the five bloods out of the conversation around the award season, it's a mirror image to like what has happened to the energy that we sort of all were collectively behind or a good portion of the nation was behind last June with the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. That movement, that energy, people's sort of willingness to dive into the discourse has faded. And a lot of people have just like moved on. They like, you know, posted a black square and then that's it. It's interesting to see the ways that that's being expressed in the American movie making machine. Looking back now in almost a year back on on the George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter movements and and the strength and and the the energy behind that whole, you know, slew of protests really around the world, there was a moment of this sort of brutal visceral catalyzing force and people had this anger they wanted to express and then they were unwilling to i think actually regard and deal with the implications of what the movement was about which is you know and call it what you want to the slogan is part of the demands of of defunding the police of rethinking the way that we consider police in american society people didn't want to hear that and and as and as soon as it became a conversation about actually changing a key institution and structural form, people started to back off from it. They used it as a cudgel as soon as, you know, the the Democrats did not do as well as they wanted to in the elections in November. And, uh, you know, and, and Joe Biden's electoral victory and, and, you know, his, his success over the, the latter half of 2020 in terms of the primaries. And then even, even during the general election, are evidence of the fact that what people were were clamoring for in the moment or what they felt was necessary was just a return to an idea of normalcy that's actually foundationally built on these systemic systems of oppression that we have been trying to get people to understand uh, didn't do the job that you think they do. We could go on for ages about I was going to say we could devote an entire episode to just this conversation. But it is, in- it is interesting to see the ways in which the tossing aside of Spike Lee's movie is a very direct mirror and manifestation of the same movement that's happened over the last eight, nine, ten months. And thinking about it in terms of this film that we're talking about today, Carl Franklin's One False Move from 1992, the situation seems to be very similar it's a movie that I had not heard of until very recently. It's a movie I had never seen before until we sat down to watch it for the show. 
I think by and large, a film that feels like it was largely forgotten to time, though it deals with a very relevant topic of the early 1990s, which is the Rodney King beating and, and the subsequent riots in Los Angeles. All cop movies made in the 1990s, in some fashion or form, reckon with this particular incident. Mm -hmm. But noteworthy, I think, that a movie like One False Move, which is, one, directed by a black filmmaker, and two, probably offers maybe one of the most nuanced, I think, portrayals and, and criticisms and assessments of law enforcement in America, at least in terms of the movies we've watched so far... This movie is not one that that rings in people's minds the way that uh, that speed does, right? One that is about the hyper competency of the LAPD, or or even like a falling down, which we've done on the show before, which also has um, a little bit of a more sort of cynical and venomous bite towards towards the police, but but is also still one about good guys and bad guys, and doesn't bother to delve into the nuance. Well, and on the other side of that coin is movies that deal more overtly and sort of hyperbolically with racism, right? Um, there are the movies that talk about, you know, how great the police are. And then there are the movies that talk about racism in America. And as a movie going audience, particularly in the 90s, you know, we were used to consuming portrayals of racism in certain lanes. There are movies like The Color Purple, where you sort of like talk about the time of slavery in mm -hmm. this country. There's um, the entire uh, Roots miniseries. Totally. There are movies that focus on the civil rights movement and sort of the key moments of animus and change and conflict that happened there. And so I think... Like a lot of, my guess is that a lot of audiences who saw this movie, who were looking for certain signals of like, oh, help me understand that this movie's about racism, weren't finding those signifiers in this movie. I didn't realize that it was sort of communicating some of the messages it was communicating until, you know, we were kind of halfway into it. And I was like, oh, that's right. Okay. It is kind of saying this thing. Yeah. It has a, a really profound cumulative effect i realized that uh after after the film sort of faded to black and the credits rolled that i was left thinking about the film reflecting on it and considering the elements of it in a way that i wasn't so much concerned with while on the ride itself and i think a big part of that has to do with what you're talking about which is that it doesn't really fit into a, a very simple and codified category of this is a cop movie or this is a movie about race. Well, and it doesn't really tie things up in a neat little bow either. Like we like to sort of watch our watch our movies about our problematic uh, institutions and past and present, and then we want things like wrapped up so we can move on with our life. Right. And it, it doesn't do that at all. Absolutely. As best as I can sort of qualify it, I think that this movie is kind of considered a neo noir mm -hmm. crime thriller. Um, but it has a lot of disparate elements that all sort of emphasize these juxtapositions that the movie is dealing with. One of the biggest ones being the uh, commingling's, the dalliances, the interrelations between white and black people, um, law enforcement and criminals, and also 
urban metropolitan sprawl meeting the sort of classic idea of middle American South. Mm -hmm. And all of these juxtapositions sort of come crashing together and into one another in a lot of really profound and interesting ways. Mm. The film, I guess we should note, uh, just in, you know, uh, talking about the credits behind this movie, Carl Franklin, as we said, is the director. Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Epperson are the screenwriters. Uh, Tom Epperson and Billy Bob Thornton collaborate pretty frequently together as as co-writers for screenplays i guess had a couple of like hbo dramas um wrote a film for sam raimi that came out in in 2000 and of course i think he he had some help uh in in crafting billy bob thornton's sort of directorial uh breakout with uh, sling blade <laughs> um but yeah, so I mean, two white guys here penning a, a pretty thoughtful and, and interesting drama, definitely about Billy Bob Thornton's roots and probably Tom Epperson's roots as well in in the classic South, as well as their experience living in Hollywood in Los Angeles and, mm-hmm. and doing so in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I think that it's really Carl Franklin's direction that is like hyper thoughtful, you know, in, intensely competent and very compassionate to all of its characters. It doesn't really dole out judgment and leaves everyone to sort of make those assumptions themselves and the ways that the film plays with those assumptions is really remarkable Mm. um i know that coming into it for me there was immediately uh no sympathy uh, and no love lost for billy bob thornton a large part of that is because i have been uh very critical of him for a long time i don't (laughs) think he's a particularly fascinating actor i think Mm -hmm. that he's a, a tremendous asshole um, but I, I do have to commend him for at least, you know, a level of talent uh, when it comes to, to the ink on the page and, and creating something that's a, a thoughtful, thoughtful script to work with. There's also Bill Paxton's character, who's the the sort of Arkansas good old boy sheriff who has never really seen anything like serious crime before, um, but has, you know, watched cops and and really wants to be a, a member of this elite law enforcement that he sees on the television. He's pretty guileless, or at least we assume so at the beginning of the film, though his uh, curvatures and and history and the nuances of his character come out more and more as the film goes on. And then there's a couple of LAPD detectives who sort of come into this this backwoods Arkansas town with their own preconceived notions of it and of how to dole out the law yeah there's there's just a lot going on here but 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 i think that there is intrigue and compassion if not overt sympathy for any of these characters from from franklin and his direction the way that this movie showcases and explores interracial relationships as you said it kind of covers all of the ways in which the characters in this movie come up against each other and um, the way that race plays a role in the nature of their relationship. There's a really beautiful line in the movie that I'm going to spoil um, because it was my absolute most favorite part of the film. When the character of Fantasia, aka Lila, who is a light-skinned black woman, she's in a relationship with Billy Bob Thornton's character, who is just grotesque in every way that he's a person awful. can be. He has the worst haircut he's, you've ever seen on anybody. He's, he's got like, like a gross like gut. Constantly and he's slimy. sweaty. Yeah. He's... Mm. Um, she, we've come to find out, um, you know, is from this town that Bill Paxton 
uh, Bill Paxton's character is a sheriff in, and that they, at a certain point, had a relationship. I think when she was underaged, like 17 or something. They confront each other towards the end of the film uh, under various circumstances, and she says to him, I'm paraphrasing, so I'm going to misquote this, but it was something to the effect of, I look white enough that you could fuck me whenever, but I'm black enough that you can dump me whenever and sort of toss me aside. And it was this really cogent, beautiful expression of like a really complex racialized existence for this woman and the dynamic with her and this white man is a good example of the ways in which this movie does that really economically in a lot of ways, both through dialogue, but also through like some physical exchanges, um, just like unpacks and illuminates a lot of really complex ideas that have to do with the dynamics of race in this country in everyday life, not in like really extreme movie making moments and does so without being really explicit about it either. That line contains a lot, but it's not, he doesn't beat you over the head with like, this is how you feel about me because I'm this and this is what you do because I'm this. It's, it's just a beautiful sort of sum up of, of a lot of complexity. And I really like the movie for that reason. Yeah. We haven't talked yet about Cinda Williams, who portrays Fantasia, a.k.a. Lila, in the film. But she is sort of uh, the moral center of the film. She is the connecting tissue of both the, the criminals and the cops in this film. She's the bleeding heart of the entire thing and probably the only, like, completely sympathetic character in the film. But she's also, funnily enough, the thing that enables the entire story to take place. Right. She's the catalyzing agent for most of the violence. In fact, in the film, she's their entryway into the initial uh, sort of home invasion and and theft of of the cocaine and the cash uh, while they're in Los Angeles. She's also the person who pulls the trigger to kill a police officer that pulls them over once they're already ID'd as suspects uh, in this sort of murder and robbery. She's also the person who then allows them into uh, the house that she's staying at supposedly safely and alone once she's in Star City, Arkansas, uh, to allow them to face Bill Paxton's gun as well at the climax of the film. Mm -hmm. So she is, yeah, the catalyzing agent for a lot of this. But she is also, too, the most tangible expression of what you're talking about, which is that sort of cooperation or lack thereof between black and white. We see it in a lot of different forms in the film. There's Ray, Billy Bob Thornton's character, and Pluto, who is played by Michael Beach, who is sort of an accomplice in this whole operation and really becomes the brains of it. He is stated as being in- incredibly intelligent. He has a-, a very high IQ. He has a good education and comes from like a good background, but also loves violence, you know, has this sort of psychopathic tendency to, to utilize a knife over... Uh, other kinds of weapons because he likes harming people and uh, the cooperation and then also the conflict between Ray and Pluto over the course of the film is a really interesting dynamic. You've got the two LAPD detectives uh, played by Jim Metzler and Earl Billings. Their names are are Dud and John. I I couldn't have even told you that. Uh, I I, I, I can't remember their last names to save my life, but, but Dud is, is Jim Metzler's character. Um, who are a white man and a black man. 
working together professionally. You have Bill Paxton's character, Dale Dixon, a.k.a. Hurricane, who, as we find out, has an illegitimate sort of bastard child with Lila, Fantasia's character, and uh, is also one of these sort of mixed-race progeny, right? The same way Lila is. Mm-hmm. She is is this sort of bridging agent between uh, white and black inherently and and skin deep. And so she, yeah, is, is a character that I think a lot of sympathy is drawn towards and, and has sort of the most to say about both of these experiences, right? About about what it's like to be someone of of light skin enough to to be accepted by the white people in this highly racialized uh, sort of segregated town in Arkansas, but also black enough that she's able to be dismissed by those people when it suits them. The same way that Bill Paxton is able to refuse to even acknowledge the son he's created with her, mm-hmm. um, which is which is a driving point of, of their confrontation, but also a, a part at the end that offers really the only glimmer of hope in an otherwise extremely dark and devastating moment of, of violence and bloodshed. I think we've already sort of alluded to it, but did want to talk about just the, the proximity of this film to the, uh, the Rodney King beating and the subsequent riots the following year. Uh, this film was being made in late 1991 after the occurrence of this beating. It takes place in Los Angeles and very much deals with the LAPD their competency, their perpetuation of violence. And the movie itself was released, I think, May 8th of 1992. So mm-hmm. it came out mere days after the riots were incited on April 29th. Yeah. Uh, one moment, and it's just a fleeting moment, but I, I really love this little detail, mm-hmm. is a scene in which Bill Paxton's character uh, is meeting the LAPD detectives for the first time, Jim Metzler and, and Earl Billings' characters. They're talking about the case. They're talking about, uh, you know, these these three criminals who have stolen all this drug money and the drugs themselves and are probably coming to, to Star City, Arkansas, where he's the sheriff. Um, at the time, it's, it's presumed that they're on their way because uh, an old man who lives just outside of town happens to be the uncle of Ray, Billy Bob Thornton's character. But we later learn that uh, Lila is actually the driving force behind this when she's identified by Bill Paxton as a former resident of the town whose mother and brother still live there. But in this first moment when they're meeting one another, discussing the case, they get uh, a call to respond to a domestic disturbance at a home. There's a very, very drunk man on the porch being violent, swinging at his house, shouting at his wife inside who has locked the door on him because he's been out all night drinking and is just showing up home on the doorstep at nine in the morning the following day. When they first get out of the car, Bill Paxton's character is quick to approach uh, without any sort of apprehension or, or fear of physical harm to himself, knowing these people, and subdues him physically by just sort of grabbing him by the arms and pinning him to the ground until he calms down. But when he first starts swinging the man outside the home and and shouting violent threats at his wife, the LAPD officers get out of the car and immediately draw their weapons. And it's just a really interesting fleeting moment. You know, I have to insist has a lot of substance and meaning behind it. Just how quickly these particular characters who are attuned to the hypersensitivity of city violence are willing 
to approach and adopt uh, a measure of lethal force or, or, or their willingness to enact it so quickly. While this other man is, you know, a, a community sort of sheriff and knows these people enough to engage with it and to respond to it in a way that doesn't harm them irrevocably. You know, I, I think also it's important to note that this movie doesn't overtly villainize the Los Angeles police officers, which I think is also really important because so many movies, as you've said, coming out of the 90s, particularly the early 90s, um, that contain cops are propaganda, or you get an errant one that actually vilifies them pretty harshly. Although I can't think of any that we've done that didn't come until like later in the 90s. Yeah. But this movie, you know, certainly doesn't paint them in the best light, um, but also doesn't claim that they're incompetent in any way or make these people out to be evil. We see them as human beings, but we also see the problematic tendencies of being a police officer and of that institution play out. Yeah, and their relationship with with Dale, with Bill Paxton's character, is a, a pretty fascinating one in the sense that Dale really idolizes them, right? He's this very aw shucks, very starry-eyed kind of law enforcement person who has these grand ambitions and big dreams of of being like real police, right? He is a sheriff in a small town. Very little happens there. Most of what he deals with is these domestic disturbances of, you know, drunkenness and and wife beaters, you know, just acting out that he has to subdue and suppress, has never even fired his gun on the job and and longs for the thrill and excitement of that. There's uh, another sequence that I think is one of my favorite in the entire film where uh, Dale invites the two LAPD detectives over to dinner at his house where he they, they meet his wife and, and a couple of different things transpire here. The first of which that I'll talk about is when the wife confronts uh, Dud, Jim Metzler's character, it's a great scene. Uh, when he's inside grabbing a, a bottle of scotch for them to finish on the porch. And she is sort of apologizing for Dale and his his ambition, his, his eagerness, sort of, his eagerness, right? And, and, and his earnestness on the job. And she says to Dud, you know, sort of almost pleading with him to take him seriously enough to be willing to protect him when bad things do happen because she knows that they will. Mm-hmm. That, that he needs to be willing to to understand that his naivety is is a liability. And she says, Dale watches TV. I read nonfiction. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, again, an interesting juxtaposition, but a really thoughtful and, and interesting little moment created out of, out of a very, very simple line of dialogue where you immediately get the picture. You, you, completely understand that this woman too knows that her husband's eagerness comes from a place of delusion of of this idealized idea of the job that he does and the job that they do that isn't real and doesn't actually consider the ramifications of what it means to pull a trigger on the job or deal with people who who actually commit serious crimes well and the thing i love about that line is the thing i love about the other line i referenced which is that which is that it it just like lays out really, really complex ideas and discourse around a thing. Like not just, oh, what we see on TV is not real and what we read in nonfiction is, but also this idea of like in, implied in that statement, whether you want to go there or not, is that 
media manufactures consent to idealize this job and these people so that we can write off mis misdoings and, and reprehensible behavior. She doesn't say that, right? But that's what's contained in that line, that the thing that the media does is idolize this institution. Jumping off of that, and then we'll come back to this dinner scene, because there is one more moment that is that is really potent and, and really worthwhile. But the dynamic between the two officers and Dale is is fascinating because they do like him and they mm -hmm. do sort of admire his eagerness and his sort of aw shucks simpleton sort of attitude towards things, but also just look down on him and and uh, belittle him privately until it's not private anymore. You know, there's a, another scene in a diner where Dale is uh, you know behind a, a sort of cabinet or, or or shelf at a at this diner convenience store sort of hybrid and overhears the two men laughing at him and his ambitions to become a police officer. And they are are quick to judge and 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 laugh off his his idea of becoming a member of the LAPD as stupid uh and and how he wouldn't, you know, last a day on the force, how mm -hmm. he's just how he's too much of like a, a a big southern idiot to do what they do. And it's it's, you know, just this sort of interesting idea of like a a coastal metropolitan elite oh yeah but those but but that attitude personified by law enforcement who themselves are people who are often subject to that same kind of dichotomy mm -hmm. and that same level of criticism as being these sort of uh doltish oafs within a more civilized or or more sort of metropolitan uh society mm -hmm. uh, so that one's really interesting but but going back to the dinner conversation there is another moment when they're actually outside at this picnic table dining where bill paxton uh, dale very casually says the n-word you know re referring to to the, the the criminals this way mm -hmm. while a black man a member of the lapd is sitting at his dinner table mm -hmm. there's so much there in such a simple moment the wife kicks him under the table to shut him up he doesn't really understand or realize what he's done wrong nor does he apologize nor does he apologize he never really even reckons with it he doesn't acknowledge it and earl billings character john the cop uh, says nothing of it either and actually seems to to really quite like dale you know mm -hmm. they're they're pretty chummy they get along they get drunk together they have a good dynamic and it's it's just a sort of fascinating sort of relational moment between all of these characters happening all at once where dale's racism is is so socialized and so so lived in that he doesn't even for a moment consider what that word at a table in the presence of a black person means or what it might do. But also there's like an added layer there too, that he sees this man as law enforcement. He sees this man as part of, he sees this man as, as a superior to him in some ways, but in terms of his skin color, in terms of his place within society, there is still this, this opportunity to even accidentally denigrate him. I, don't think as I was watching it that I thought like, oh man, like what a line or, you know, like this is, <laughs> this is really getting into some shit. And you don't, you don't think like, about that with any of the, the no, lines of this movie or I was any just of like the like along for the ride and, you know, notice that it was doing some interesting things, but not really like spending time dissecting it. 
This movie is also paced pretty well, so it moves at a decent clip. You're not lingering in anything for too long. And it's um, a lean, like, 110 minutes. Yeah. It's shy of two hours. It, it's it's a quick watch. Very propulsive. But as we talk about it more and as we've sort of sat with it, it really is quite incredible how much is contained in these, like, little nuggets of exchanges you know, whether it's a line or a look between two characters or or what have you, like there's just so much richness there. And the movie in that way is a total sleeper. There were times when I was watching it where I was like, on the one hand, bored. And then on the other hand, like kind of like, oh, this movie's kind of wacky. Like, you know, because there's some, there's just <laughs> yeah. some like interesting kind of weird exclamatory stuff that happens yeah well and it's it's a film that doesn't really feel like anything else that we've watched thus it totally far. doesn't it's it's a very it's it's details and its environments do not feel unfamiliar but the ways in which those things are pitted against one another and and pressed up against one another feels incredibly distinct and and very original for in- for the for operating in a form and in a in a sort of genre that that is very well tread. The only sort of film we've talked about that I think it reminds me of in that regard is Falling Down. Because Falling Down kind of does the same thing where we're in downtown Los Angeles, we're in, you know, sprawling concrete urban settings. It's all stuff that we're familiar with, but it does play with more nuanced, complex ideas and how certain things, class, race, uh, politics, butt up against each other within this very familiar setting. And that movie too is also one that like not a lot of people got or remember or like feel particularly good about, right? Or just like blatantly misinterpret, you Mm -hmm. know? It's a movie that I think in the current moment upon critical reassessment, a lot of people interpret as apologia for a particular subset of uh like white male rage yeah and i it's not that at all it in is fact not it's that at all. in fact it's one of i think the the most sterling indictments of that particular ideology while also not siding with other institutions of like capitalist america in the 90s like law enforcement it's historicized completely in a way that other narratives aren't i also just <laughs> You're making me realize that, so we watched this movie like over a week ago, I think. And it was just prior to the Meghan Markle interview with Oprah. Right. And which I didn't even know was happening until everyone was talking about it on the internet. And then I was like, I I guess I'm supposed to care about this, but I don't. But I think it's really interesting that like we always do this where like we'll watch a movie and then like, Two, three days later, something happens or some conversation online takes place that's entirely germane to the movie we just watched yeah, and the context that we unpack from it. There's there's some word for that phenomena. Like like it's it's not quite like Bader Meinhof, and it's also not quite like Mandela effect. Right. But it's something in between that, right? Where it's like it's almost as if the movie that we watch somehow anticipates and predicts a cultural moment that's about to happen yeah maybe it's just because time is a flat circle and and, uh (laughs) nothing means anything but everything means means all things and i don't want to talk about the royal family right now but i do think it's interesting that there has you know since been a lot of conversation not just about race but about sort of like 
what white passing black people sort of get afforded and right. and and Meghan of, Markle is like a light-skinned black person uh, and also just class too mm-hmm. there's like a lot of conversation around like okay it's Oprah who's a billionaire talking to people who are actually royalty right <laughs> like you know so then there's yeah. There's like conversations There's, around that. There was the conversation, I think, and maybe you shared this with me, but about the idea that, you know, Meghan Markle's first real brush with a highly racialized environment and, and one in which she was seen as inferior to other people in the room didn't happen until she was literally in a room populated exclusively with British royalty. Right. You know, <laughs> that, that, that she is, uh, you know, part of like a Hollywood elite. She's an actress. She's very successful, very wealthy, like you know, uh, sort of classically identified as, as beautiful and has all the traits that we find, we find attractive. Like it, 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 she did not seem to have a big conversation surrounding her about the color of her skin or how dark she was until it was literal ghosts in the room. Literal royal ghosts. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we we definitely don't need to talk about that because yeah. it's it's a whole it's a whole thing. We're but not I do we're think not going to talk about it. I but. do think it's interesting um, that you know we watch this movie and there is a lot of conversation and exploration around you know um, race and sort of like the ways in which black people, depending on where they are geographically, but also sort of where they are on the white perspective right. of blackness sort of the binary spectrum between like like dark skin and light skin that that informs a lot of their lived experience Mm -hmm. and there's that other great line in the movie that's related that i think also comes from fantasia when she says being black and being guilt being guilty are the same thing or something yeah i think the line she's misquoting well and and there's an interesting sort of sub subtext here as well not subtext but i guess you know there there's an interesting sort of uh texture to to her line here she's talking with her brother who's asking her very pointedly if she did the things that she's accused of doing which she denies granted she is the person who shot a cop through the head like she she did pull the trigger and and is complicit in in a lot of these crimes despite you know wishing or, or wanting to be completely absolved of the sin her brother asks her when she's back in star city with him if she's done this, if she's guilty, and she says something along the lines of, I'm black, and when you're black, looking guilty and being guilty is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an incredible amount of resonance there, right? Like, even for a light-skinned black person, like, being black in America does come with this systemic impulse to, to blame, to, to accuse and to see as criminal. Yeah. The, the film deals with that again in a really textured way, in a really uh, thoughtful way without it being overt and hitting you over the head. There's a lot of those little moments. One of my favorite of which is the conclusion and climax of the movie, which we should get into and talk about here as we wrap up. It is a, a cacophony of violence. Mm-hmm. At this point, Dale has gone to visit Lila, a.k.a. Fantasia, Cinda Williams' character, at this safe house that she's staying at outside of Star City, outside of town. They confront one another. He urges her to cooperate with the police. It's at this point that we learn that the two of them had sort of a a torrid affair. 
that uh, she was underage and that it produced a son who she's been raising for the last five years or that her mother has been raising for her for the last five years in town that he refuses to acknowledge. At the same time, Ray and Pluto call and find out where Lila is staying and come to intercept her, pick her up, and go on their way after a series of failed attempts to sell off the cocaine that they're carrying. Dale stays. They all confront one another. Um, and a series of, as the film implies, false moves take a couple of lives and cause a great deal of violence. Dale looks away briefly once he has Pluto and Ray at gunpoint, leaving enough time for Pluto to draw his knife and stab him in the side. He shoots Pluto. Ray flees. Dale runs out the door after him in pursuit. So does Lila. Uh, Ray shoots hits Dale in the arm, and his second shot goes straight through Lila's head, killing her instantly. Dale finishes the job of, of killing Ray and then calls for help, calls for backup on the police line. They are already in pursuit and on their way with Lila's son, who is trying to help them identify the sort of back road <laughs> yeah. that that uh, that that they've, they've taken where he's been taken to to go and see her the night before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's actually a, a funny kind of sort of blackly comic moment where all of these detectives and, and, you know, like uh, America's finest here are sitting in the back seat with a little boy in the passenger seat of a police cruiser, trying to identify the road that he went down the night before. He's also a very cute little boy. He's, he's very sweet, but the film ends with, you know, Dale bleeding out and, and his, uh, survival uncertain in this this moment as they call for an ambulance to come and pick him up and survey the carnage that's erupted and in this moment the little boy uh his son comes out of the police cruiser and starts talking with him asks him if he's gonna die asks him why he's hurt asks him what happened and he goes for a moment towards the house and dale stops him and brings him in and says come over here stay with me talk with me and the film fades to black with the two of them sort of embracing and for the first time dale acknowledging his existence saying his name aloud and spending a moment looking at him face to face yeah there's there's a, a somberness and solemnity to it but there's also this sort of like glimmer of hope for like a you know a future generation that is accepted you know in some way I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those moments that I, I haven't stopped thinking about. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie and, and just a really, really wonderful way, I think, to conclude the film. That's all I have to say about it. I think I think it's great. I think that it adds to that effect of, of just being kind of simultaneously a gut punch and, and a very sort of soft landing. Yes. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you agree with that. I do. I don't have yeah. anything to add. Okay. <laughs> The last thing I want to talk about with this film is just Carl Franklin's career after and even before this movie. He started as an actor of stage and screen, had a few sort of middling roles in in various low-budget films, uh, and then became a director, did a couple of of sort of straight-to-TV fare. And this is his first real movie with a budget where he had kind of free reign to do what he wanted. You can see him kind of exercising that a lot. He he definitely goes there with some of the violence and a lot of the ideas and themes of the film. And then in 95, followed this up with Devil in a Blue Dress, which mm-hmm. is maybe his most famous film starring Denzel Washington. Yep. But in the latter part of his career now, he has moved almost exclusively to television and has done 
episodes of The Leftovers, The Affair. He directed Homeland, a couple episodes of The Newsroom. Mm. Um, I think I think he even did a couple episodes of House of Cards and Mindhunter. Oh wow! For for David Fincher. So yeah, it's just it's an interesting trajectory to his career. You know, this sort of what we talked about on display here, this sort of hyper competency, this lyricism, this this understanding of of cinematic language that's transitioned into kind of this invisible hand guiding a lot of these very well-regarded shows. As you sort of go down the list of TV shows that he's been a part of, it would make sense that his directorial eye would translate really well to those kinds of shows and particularly to the format of serialized television because he is so good at unpacking and kind of exploring complex ideas and dynamics in really tight, cogent, but also highly uh, realistic dialogue and exchanges that that would lend itself to TV really well, particularly dramas and thrillers that deal with politics, race, wars, etc. So that doesn't surprise me. I, th- I think that One False Move is a movie that feels deeply cinematic, just in its its tone, in in its portrayals, and and in its narrative, but also has a little bit of that realism in the sense that it feels more literary in the way that it deals with these themes, rather than bludgeoning you with them. Yeah, that was my earlier point that like it doesn't feel like an Oscar baby epis where, you know, we're talking about slavery and we have all these sort of recognizable cinematic tropes and signifiers that tell us like, oh, you're supposed to feel this way about this thing. Um, yeah, it, it avoids the sort of sweeping grandeur of a lot of those films while also definitely playing into a lot of the classic sort of cinematic stylings. Like the movie has a, a wonderful score it has like a little bit of kind of like interesting sort of like late 80s smooth jazz beats to it but also a little bit of that southern twang and it it does a good job of of fusing a lot of its disparate elements and there's some interesting camera angles too so you're right it's definitely cinematic but it's not cinematic in the way that we tend to sort of like more tritely apply that word it's on like the tip of my tongue and and sort of front center in my mind right now only because we we recently explored it but i think of something like uh, like broad church the bbc series right. with david Tennant and olivia coleman which yeah. attempts to do this highly evocative very deeply real dark kind of mystery story and comes up flat so often just because of how artificial it feels it's too handled it's yeah. like way too handled and it's not even the stylistic elements of it i think a lot of it is is in the narrative in the ways in which people interact and and speak to one another in a way that doesn't feel lived in and real in the same kind of way that that carl franklin handles his characters and and clearly has studied you know the idea of a very understated quiet performances and still delivering and getting across heavy-weighted themes and messages. Yeah, it feels at once terrestrial in all the ways that that word is a good thing for movies and art and also feels very evocative and very artistic. Yeah, I think it's a great film. I hope at some point we get to do Devil in a Blue Dress on the show. I would love to see it. I haven't 
before. Maybe he'll be our second director that we revisit next. I think we Maybe. need to like come back from the turtle taub. Like <laughs> Yeah, there was there's some trauma associated with that. We like were we were both very surprised that we came back to of all the directors John Turtle Taub. We came back to John Turtle Taub. Yeah. I'm gonna make oh I, I've already sort of I think stated this rule before off microphone, but I would like to see us hit one hundred episodes before we come back to a director. Unless a guest really wants to go there. If yes. a, if a guest we we defer to the guest if they want to do uh you know a James Cameron movie or or want to do uh Paul Verhoeven or Steven Spielberg picture or something like that and it really moves and speaks to them we'll do that thing but otherwise i think that that when it's just the two of us on mic we're going to try out new directors yes yeah a guest or my birthday which is why we watch which is Kim right Runnings. right when when it's a special occasion maybe on my birthday we'll just watch uh, all James Cameron movies. All of James Cameron's movies. <laughs> but um, yeah, One False Move, fantastic. It's it's nice every so often to watch a movie that actually has good politics that came out in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there's not much to say about it except that we really enjoy it and and that it's thoughtful and, and complex and interesting in all the ways that good movies are. Um, so yeah, go watch this one as soon as you can. It's uh, on Criterion Channel. It's one of the few streaming services I, I have no apprehension or qualms about promoting. I think it's the best deal on the internet. I think that's it for this week. We'll see you with some exciting stuff coming in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but until then, we have been Hit Factory, as always. We have been. We have been and continue to be <laughs> Hit Factory in all times, in all universes, <laughs> across all planes of existence. The multiverse. <laughs> uh, as always, you can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Subscribe at uh, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Uh, for all of our fun premium content. Again, we are indefinitely donating all of our Patreon proceeds to Hotels Not Hospitals, getting money for our unhoused San Francisco neighbors, making sure that they stay sheltered and safe throughout the pandemic. Shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda, and we will see you next time. 